0: You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now, for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts.
1: Hi, this is Caitlin Martin.
0: I'm Towner French.
2: This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark
3: Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Rodney, Towner, Caitlin, Mark, no Patrick this week. He's at some thing that you go to when you have a kid in kindergarten or first grade or whatever she is. It's great to be back and a little bit of a slow news week, but us some interesting things on the, your favorite committee, the rules committee front. Why don't you, as Mark calls you the professor? Why don't, professor, why don't you, why don't you talk about that and set the table and let's get some perspective from Rodney.
0: Yeah, sounds good. I, the House of Representatives has uh, has very, very slowly worked their way through uh, what would be a, a standard two-hour consideration max, uh, including the votes, bill uh, for the previous decade. And it's taken them a week because they did it under what we call an open rule, which means that uh, members with a pre-printing requirement, they asked that members print their amendment ideas in the congressional record a day ahead of time. But the open rule allows for any member of Congress to offer an amendment as long as it complies with the House rules and budget rules. So it has to be germane. It has to you know, not raise mandatory spending, things along those lines. But members have responded to this strategic petroleum reserve uh, bill that was fairly narrow in scope uh, that was put up. It's the first uh, bill to go through the Rules Committee and, and to the House floor this year since they have a slow start with the organizing and we've had over a hundred amendments uh, that have been considered on this relatively minor and uh, insignificant piece of legislation. Uh, Rodney and I were were just joking. I the last time they had an open rule in the House on an authorizing bill was in 2013, was 10 years ago. The last time they had an open rule on an appropriations bill was 2016. So Rodney got a few of those. Uh, under his belt while he was a member of Congress, but I'm not sure that he ever voted uh, on an open amendment process uh, on the House floor on an authorizing bill while he was in Congress. Rodney,
4: yeah, I, I mean I got elected in '13, so I I, I did. Uh, I remember the appropriations open rules, and it has been uh it's been an interesting time to kind of watch my colleagues. But there's two things to think about here. You know, the Rules Committee is asking for a little more structure, which actually allows folks outside of Congress to be able to play a role and understand what that structure is going to be and see where an impact can be made on behalf of our or their clients, too. But let's also not forget that this is the first time many current freshmen, but more so many folks who have been in Congress now a few terms, this is the first time they're going through two-minute votes to do amendments, Uh, It it is a change. You think back to the COVID rules that we had that really closed the rules process and allowed somebody like me to go in and have an impact as a minority member. But when you're in the majority, like I was the first three terms, you really didn't have to go to rules as much because a lot of your rules were, were going to be taken up on block and you knew it. So it was a kind of a done deal process. This open rule process, new members on the rules committee that enjoy being in that room For an incessant amount of time, this is going to be a very long process for members too, which I think is—I don't think—is a bad thing. I think it teaches them how important process is and how important the that every step of the legislative process is. And these point of this,
3: sorry, is the point of this, uh, sorry, Rodney, that it slows—it just slows Congress down.
4: No, no, I I don't think so. I, I think this is the. Effect of a very slim majority that Republicans have, and those members like Chip Roy and Thomas Massey, whom I served with for for many years, they enjoy the process. They are entranced by the legislative process and the historical precedents that have been put in place there. And over the last over the last three years, those processes and precedents have just been destroyed by by a COVID response on the Hill and it angered them and it angered me too, that that process was in place. And now um, members, uh, new members, current members, uh, longtime members, they're remembering what Towner explained. And Rodney,
0: I'd take it a step further, actually, and say it isn't just COVID that's destroyed the House of Representatives' open process. Uh this this was a long-standing uh slow downward trend uh through Speakers Pelosi, Speaker Ryan, even to a certain extent, Speaker Boehner. Um, it started under Denny Haster, probably. I think you could argue that you know what happened. When Democrats controlled the House of Representatives for essentially three decades with super majorities through the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, Newt Gingrich reopened the entire place. He rethought Contract with America was a lot more than it was a, a bunch of uh, you know political positions. It was really a policy uh, paper, and it had a lot more to do with House rules than I think anybody really realizes or remembers right now. Ever since Contract with America, the process has been closed again and again and again, over and over. And quite frankly, members of Congress don't have to do much and staff don't have to do much when it comes to voting on the House floor. You have a closed rule, which means it's just an up or down vote on a bill that's been blessed by the majority. So the majority members are going to vote for it, writ large. Minority members are going to vote against it, writ large. And other than that, you have some process votes. And, And the House Representatives, doesn't take up amendments where you have to have good staff work, you have to think through what the impacts to your district are, uh, constituents, coalitions, our ability to go in and lobby on amendments to be able to have amendments offered for our clients or to try to defeat amendments that have been offered against our clients. This opens up a massive amount of staff work, lobbying work, that is going to take place on the House floor. And so you're going to have less bills because they're going to take more time, but far more meaningful legislative process.
3: It's kind of interesting because I think one of the things that, one of the strains that's running through society at large and certainly through society as it relates to government is anti-institutionalism. And what I hear you guys saying is that and and by the way, I think a lot of that is on the far right and the far left. And that's fueling a lot of the populism in politics. And this is just obviously my, my personal view, but this feels
0: like a reinvigoration of the institution in some ways. I, I think it really is. I think it really is. I think, and I'll turn it over in two seconds, but there's two things that I, I wanted to mention. The first is I hate half of the things that the Freedom Caucus made Kevin McCarthy do. I absolutely love and cheer half of the things that the Freedom Caucus made Ke- Kevin McCarthy do. And this is the part that I love. Let's reopen the institution. Let's let all members this more minority members, members, Democratic members are going to offer amendments in this open process than our Republican members. This behooves the minority more so than it behooves the re- the majority. And so let's reopen the process. Other stuff, the motion to vacates, the threats, things like that, hate them. But this process reform is desperately needed, and I, I hope it continues.
4: I, I would have loved having this open process when we were in the minority the last four years. Uh, it would have been it would have been phenomenal to be able to send a message back home to what you're doing on behalf of your constituents, what they're asking about, and allows every member to be able to build a record. So get ready. Uh, everything's going to take longer in Congress. But, you know, I would listen to Towner talk incessantly like I have for now 10 plus years. (laughs) Um, There's one point that I I, want to make is that, the way Towner laid out that timeline so nonchalantly that oh you know you know it got got worse even under Paul Wright I mean that was when Towner was there to screw it up I mean this is this is a process now he stands there he's no better than any politician I ever served oh I love the open process I love oh. the open process but when I was there I closed it. I made Congress lazy. That's what <laughs> hey, Towner hey. French's legacy. I dang near
0: got fired because I opposed well, this uh, open a, rules on appropriations bills. A day, uh, a
2: day of atonement for Towner
0: here. Uh, I, I've been pretty vocal about like, this even inside. I do have a decent track but, record. But on that
2: Towner one. and Rodney, let me ask you this, if I may appreciate Howard's perspective on the institutionalism, but for our audience and. For me, frankly, what, what I'm hearing is that this is not going to result in more legislation. It may, in fact, result in in less or at least it will take longer. But the point and purpose here um, are to have better legislation, more informed legislation, more participatory legislation, if you will. Am I understanding what this is about? More legislating. More legislating, even if it results in right. less and and longer process legislation.
0: Yeah.
4: There, there will
0: eventually be frustration that comes about as a result of this, because majority members, you know, are fine <laughs> opening up the process on either side over the course of the last 20 years, as long as there is... And understanding with the minority that these are going to be productive exercises. So when you have minority members, you know, offer 100 amendments to this piece of legislation, which was very insignificantly small, and then they're all going to vote en masse against the underlying bill, you're going to start, even at the end of this week, you're going to start hearing a little chorus of members who say, why are we offering all these amendments to the minority when they're just going to vote against it anyway? And so, you know, we're we're starting by the end of this week. We'll be one week in, and we'll start that downward slope again, where it's like, well, maybe we should close the process a little bit more and a little bit more, so we can just do whatever we want to and not have to vote on anything politically contentious. But I do think that in the so, short term, they're they're going to keep it open and they're going to you know work their way through the process. So, so if you're where- Hakeem Jeffries, Rodney, you like this.
4: No. Oh, if, if I'm Hakeem Jeffries, I, I love this. Um, but here, here's let's look at where we are as a country. It's a divided government. We have a Republican House, a Democrat Senate, and a Democratic president. I don't think anybody really thought that we were going to see major legislative successes outside maybe a farm bill, maybe FAA reauthorization, NDAA, things that that happen on a regular basis when they're expiring and ready to go, or like the NDAA happens every year. Um, so this process can be put in place because the entire process of legislating is slower anyway because of divided government. Now, here we are, if, if we look back to when Towner just really set the Towner-French precedent and closed Congress <laughs> to, to <laughs> legislators like me that were excited to go into the Rules Committee and then just shut us down. Um, that Run was along, un- That was undivided government. And the key is going to be, is this process ever going to remain when one party has control of the White House and both the House and the Senate? And I would argue that it will not remain.
0: But it takes a well, while to dismantle, is what well, we've
2: seen. So, Rodney, let, I, I know, Rodney, you have a, a clock ticking here on, on your time. Let me ask you before uh, we have to let you go. So how does this rule, if at all, impact the only thing anybody is talking to me anyway about with the House, which is the debt ceiling debate? Does, oh.
4: It's going to have an impact, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I always said, even though I was in a a tough district and I got asked questions about the debt limit all the time, like the sky is going to fall. America's not going to default on its debt. But why not leverage any vote to get something that could make put our country on a better financial fiscal path? And that's where now you have individual members that will be able to provide that leverage. And and oh boy, some of these ideas, you're going (laughs) to take a step back and you're going, huh, I never thought of that. Some will be good. Some will be bat crap crazy, and they will not pass. And the key is going to be, what is the media going to focus on? Are they going to focus on the crazy stuff? Or are they going to actually look at some solutions that could help us? And I hope they do, but I doubt it.
3: The media is going to focus on making everybody think that we're going over a cliff.
1: Yeah, the headlines have been a little ridiculous, particularly this early in the game.
0: It's so early. I mean, I'm expecting CNN to start a a, a, a breach clock six months Count. out uh, okay. at this point.
2: Countdown to catastrophe. I'll, yeah. I'll give a cry on there.
3: We'll see you in uh, July. So, as you guys know, I've been at a conference this week and and speaking to a group of of CEOs. And
2: you're you're not going to tell us where you've been. How I'm not or- going to.
3: I'm not going to reveal the
0: undisclosed location. Okay. I'm. I'm, I'm
2: not going to bust you on the air here. CEOs um, go
0: to really awful places. I think is the lesson it, here. You know? But it,
3: interestingly, all they want to talk about is immigration, because these are CEOs in the service industry where they employ workers frontline type workers and they can't get enough labor. And literally, I mean, I I feel like there's no real prospect, Rodney, of immigration reform at large, but I just think it's interesting because these things can evolve. And if people, I, w- I wouldn't say these folks, I mean, if anything, they lean more right than left. And that's what they wanted to talk to me about.
4: Well, I, and I got to jump after this, but I do want to make this point. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I will tell you, I believe the new third rail of politics is immigration. It's not social security and Medicare insolvency and reform. I think you have more willingness in the house right now to address those issues than to put a good immigration policy past. It's I, I, I witnessed it when we were in the in the minority. I witnessed it when we were in the majority and Everybody wants to come together with ideas, and and in the end, it's never enough for the left, and it's always too much for the right, and there were not enough of us in the middle that actually could get the votes to pass it. I mean, we had that, that, what I believe is that principle compromise back in 2017 and 2018. We would have built the border wall, Trump could have stood up and, and campaigned from there. We actually would have addressed internal immigration issues and existing immigration policy issues and would have put a path forward for legal residency for every DACA recipient and dreamer in the country. But folks wanted to use it. And you think back, the last time in our our, our nation's history where there was a 60-vote majority in the Senate, and there was a, a, a Democrat overwhelming majority in the House and a Democratic president. It wasn't too long ago. It was Barack Obama's presidency in his first term. And what did they choose to address? They chose to address healthcare. They could have addressed immigration, but they wanted to use it as an issue in the midterms in 2010 and got excoriated, lost a majority for it. And they wanted to use it in the presidential election in 2012.
3: Yeah. Interesting. Well, there. I mean, I, I share your view and that's what I told these folks. But on the flip side, I think it's interesting that there's like this kind of groundswell of, People in business saying, hey, we need to change this and we'll see what happens.
4: Well, it's going to be interesting because the, the, the last time immigration was on the table, Republicans couldn't get enough votes to pass it. President Trump was for it before he was maybe against it. And I, I watched uh, in disbelief how we argued against ourselves. Uh, but in the end, those CEOs, those companies, are going to have to realize it's a much different Republican majority right now, and some of the issues that those companies decided to jump in and address since the last time we addressed, we tried to address immigration, have put them uh, in a position not to be able to argue their point as well. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we'll let you go. And great talking to you, you, Towner. I'm... Towner French screwed up the rules process. That is the <laughs> point. Everybody's got to remember.
0: Poor <laughs> Towner. But thankfully, the Freedom Caucus fixed it.
4: (laughs) We love Towner French.
2: Yeah. See y'all. I will say, Towner, not that I'm in the habit of giving advice to your friends in the uh, Freedom Caucus. But when I listened to you say you hate half of it and and love the other half, Mm -hmm. I think uh, they need a new press agent. Because the presentation to the country of the Freedom Caucus in the media, at least, is that they aren't interested in governing, that what they're interested in is burning everything down. And listening to you talk about the institutionalism and the process and the commitment to, as Howard said, legislating, whether it results in legislation or not, it is a it's a better look for the freedom caucus than their current image.
0: Well, so here's here's the the rub though. I don't know that they know that's what they ended up doing. Uh they wanted <laughs> to open up the process so that, that they could get in. They wouldn't be shut out by leadership of committee slots or of offering amendments. The amendments they're going to offer are going to be nuts and nobody's they're going to be voted against by, you know, 350 to 380 members of Congress because they're not going to be logical. They're not going to be sensible. They're not going to be moving the country in the right direction. So they they wanted more and more of a platform inside of the process. But unintentionally, I think, to a certain degree, they actually were steered in a direction where they open up the process for everybody. You can't just open it for one and not others even though they tried that uh in the negotiations with McCarthy that they get to offer some amendments to each bill for example only the freedom caucus. You can't do that. But what you can do is say fine we'll open up the process. And so they're going to quickly understand uh that they the the process is better for everybody. The other thing that I'd mention is uh, and we were talking about this just before we got on the podcast which is I remember There's a member of Congress from Texas whom I like very, very much. He's probably one of my favorite members of Congress. He's one of the more thoughtful members of Congress, Mike Burgess. And he is a healthcare expert in the House of Representatives. He ran for energy and commerce uh, chair and and should have gotten it to be quite frank. Um, And he is an excellent member of Congress. He was in a very red district. He continues to be in a very red Texas district. He was siding towards the Freedom Caucus uh, a number of years back. And when I worked on the Rules Committee, we made the determination actually quasi against John Boehner's preference to put Mike Burgess on the Rules Committee. And uh, it was a decision that my boss at the time, Pete Sessions, made because he liked uh, Mike and, and wanted him to be involved in the process. Burgess is considered a moderate member now. Being inside and seeing the calculations that have to go on to put a piece of legislation on the floor, to get a voting coalition together, to pass a piece of legislation all of the 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 policy decisions and the background, being inside the process actually moderated him and brought him back into what we would consider the establishment Republican fold. Uh, he's certainly right of center. He's got ar plus 30 district in Texas. Um, but at the same point in time, he understands how to work the process how to get along with his colleagues in the majority. Uh, and I hope that's going to happen to the three Freedom Caucus members that were put on the Rules Committee. Now they're responsible. They have to be responsible. They can't just throw up their hands and say, "Say I was shut out, so I'm going to vote no and be disagreeable. Now they're part of the problem potentially moving forward. I always think about like a Mick Mulvaney going to Trump White House and all of a sudden being okay with deficit increases or, you know... <laughs> Once you get inside, it's hard to say it's not my problem. I'm just going to vote no. Sorry. Yeah, especially when you're in the majority. Yeah. You own it. Caitlin,
3: translating this to the presidential, which is the, I guess, the other thing people wanted to talk about, is Trump going to be the nominee? Is Biden running again? Conspiracy theories galore. I mean, the number of conspiracy theories people out there have about Biden and Kamala and what's going to happen is get putting Gavin Newsom on the ticket. And it's just there's crazy stuff. But how does this how does the shift left and right manifest itself? I guess focus on the right and who comes out of the Republican field for 2024?
1: Well, I think it's really interesting. Usually around this time in the cycle, we would have more clarity on, you know, who and, and more folks sort of throwing their hat in the ring. The field generally on both sides right now feels a bit frozen. You know, on the on the Republican side, you had a lot of, you know, folks that expected that Trump would get in, but are still waiting to see how much effort he's really putting in. We saw this week Facebook reinstated him on Instagram and his Facebook page. And so it'll be interesting to see what having that megaphone again might do. But again, we're still not hearing and, and I'm still sticking with, you know, my um, prediction that the Republican Party is ready for someone new, whether it be someone like a Ron DeSantis, who is getting beat up left and right. It's funny. You see Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis going at each other week after week after week like they're the two front runners um in the republican and the democratic presidential primary neither one has formally jumped in or announced and it's it's just been interesting biden obviously still hasn't come out and been fully you know jumped in he keeps saying his team keeps saying he's running but it's it's probably one of the latest starts right that we that we've gotten to a presidential primary cycle and i think there's a lot of fatigue in america about both Biden and Trump, and it'll be interesting to see kind of who emerges uh, in both lanes um, that are not in the Biden or Trump camp.
3: Yeah, Mark, what what do you think about that?
2: Well, Biden is running. I think the day before the midterms, he was leaning towards reelect the day after the midterms, it was a decision done and dusted, and he is running. He is running with Kamala. There's all the talk about uh, is he going to swap her out? He's not, of course. So we know who our ticket is today. Now it's a long time till November of 2024, and the world keeps turning, but Today on our side of the aisle, we know who who our ticket is. and it it is fun to watch what's happening uh, on the other on the other side.
3: If Mark is saying done and dusted on our podcast, that means he's spending too much time with Leanne Hainsby I, on the Haynesby. I knew you would
2: recognize that. I, uh, that was that was a softball uh Leanne and I have a date for this afternoon. Very good. Well
3: I just think it's interesting because the parties continue to move toward the extremes, but you still have to win in the middle. I mean you still have to you still have to run a general and, and win in the middle and that's that's where the rubber meets the road. And so you know you can't Look at the look at the midterms. You can't put anybody too extreme on on the ballot. I, you know, Mark on Biden, I tend to agree, but he's eighty years old and you know frail to some degree. I mean, I I don't know. I as long as he's healthy, he's
2: running. Right. But that's, that's a right. That's why that's I a, say today. All, all we know is where we are this morning and this morning. It's a a certainty that he thinks he is running for Uh, re-election. And I'm hoping he's healthy enough to do it. But the thing is, though, if it's Biden
3: and not Trump, and you've got, let's just say it's Ron DeSantis. I don't know whether, I don't know how he's going to perform on the national stage. We really don't know but let's just say it's 40-something-year-old Ron DeSantis against 80-something-year-old Joe Biden. Just that alone? The, the visual's not great. <laughs> the, the, like, the visual is not great for Can that. he beat Trump again? Yes. Can he beat somebody that's popular, that's half his age? I don't so think so.
1: Not. What, Caitlin? said so probably not.
2: I think you're way ahead of yourselves. You said it a moment ago. We we've seen this every four years forever. We don't know how Ron DeSantis is gonna perform on the national stage, to quote our, our moderator here. Yeah. And we we have watched candidates go from front runner to forgotten by blowing themselves up with yeah, their but performance. He's just,
3: I could I could name six
2: other people. Tim that's Scott. the point, Nikki. Nikki Haley, right? Tim right. Scott. I think it it is a it is a very good bet. This is as far out on a limb as I'll go about Towner and Caitlin's party. It is a very good bet that the Republicans will nominate someone younger than Joe Biden. I'll give you that. <laughs> that's that's a big and, concession, Mark. And, well, that's what you're saying, though. You're Wait, saying. That means it's- Well, no. When the visual is an 80 year old and a much less than 80 year old, what does the country do with that? And that's a a, a TBD. Hmm. How how
0: often does Joe Biden reuse Ronald Reagan's quote, I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my (laughs) opponent's youth and inexperience? Right. Right. Well, to, to be continued, Spirited
3: and fun as always. Towner, thank you. I think you did a great job of, expl- of putting this, what, what to most people is very down in the weeds process in a broader context. So, so thank you for doing that.
0: I'm excited. There are client opportunities galore. I mean, it's going to require, you know, doing amendments again, which we haven't had to do for a long time. The staff are going to be having to think on their feet. We're going to have to lobby on our feet. and But so many different industries are going to be instantly affected uh, when all 435 members can, can actually put something on the House floor that it it, it requires attention from from you know, our clients as well.
3: Yep. All right, guys, have a uh, great week and we will be back next week. Thanks, guys.
0: You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been
3: produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.